Welcome to Adapter's Advantage, breakthrough moments that lead to success. Our podcast brings you insider stories of the moments that mattered, turning points on the sometimes rocky road to success. Here's your host, Mark Magnaca, president and co-founder of Alego, the workforce training and readiness platform built for distributed teams. Hi, I'm Mark Magnaca. I want to welcome you to our next episode of Adapter's Advantage. I'm here today with Mike Kunkel. Before we start, I want to give you a little background on Mike. Mike is a recognized expert on sales training, sales effectiveness, and sales enablement. He spent over 25 years helping companies drive dramatic revenue growth through best-in-class training strategies and proven effective sales transformation systems. He's delivered some impressive results for both employees and clients. Today, Mike's uh, he works as the Vice President of Sales Effectiveness Services for Sparks IQ, where he designs sales training, delivers workshops, and helps clients improve sales results through a wide variety of sales effectiveness services. Beyond that, Mike is known as a subject matter expert across the world of sales enablement. So with that, Mike Kunkel, welcome. Hey, Mark, thank you very much. And uh, that introduction was just like my mom wrote it. <laughs> well, Mike, you know, I covered a lot of different things that you do. And there's uh, a lot of questions that I want to ask you. But let me jump right in with the simple one. When you meet people and they hear about your role and they ask you now, Mike, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I just give them the short story, really. I help company leaders drive dramatic revenue growth through proven effective sales transformation systems. And that usually like gets a head tilt and we go off on something from there. But, uh, you know, it's the basic stuff, hiring, training, coaching, managing process, methodology, analytics. It's, you know, it's what, uh, what makes a sales force run. So Mike, one little known fact in this podcast interview that a lot of people don't know is your your background as a musician. So can you just uh, tell our listeners what your background in music was, and then we're gonna thread the needle to uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, so I was in high school and there was this clarinet player that I wanted to meet. And in homeroom, the, uh, the homeroom teacher announced that they were looking for low brass players in the band. So I went downstairs into the band room and I went to the band director and I said, I'd like to learn how to play a low brass. He says, okay. I said, so what is that? <laughs> and he gives me a list. I said, which one is easiest to learn how to play? And he lies through his teeth because this is what he needs. We laughed about this years later, but he, li he lies through his teeth and he says trombone. And trombone is probably one of the tougher ones to learn because of the slide and yeah. all of that. But anyway, I got into uh, I got into music my freshman year of high school. It turned into a, a real passion. I went to college, Mansfield University, in their music performance program and in their music history, literature and theory program. So I have two degrees in music. And after that, um, I I played professionally for uh, for two years. So I uh, and landed in a band that was playing at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it, it turned out, Mark, not to be the long-term career path for me, you know, living out of the back of my Nissan hatchback, um, mm -hmm. you know, and traveling with, with, with the band. But I learned so many things that transferred into the world of business. 
right? So I, I, you know, the the practice, the rehearsing, you know, drilling. I, when, when I was in music, I was recording myself all the time and listening back and trying to develop my own ability to self-coach in addition to all the lessons I was taking. And so I got into the sales by accident. I went back home after leaving this gig and deciding I was going to pack up the horns. Um, and I answered an ad in the uh, in the morning call. And it was for an inside sales position. Mm -hmm. So the phone rang, I answered, and you know, I really was horrible. But this owner saw something in me and put his arm around me and put me under his wing and trained and coached me, uh, which first sort of fueled a lifelong passion around training and coaching. But secondly, I bought a, a, a VHS recorder and I was using my record, my cassette recorder at the time from what I did with music. And so I practiced, I drilled, I rehearsed, I role played with people in the office. I did everything I possibly could to apply what I learned in music to my new career. And I got good. And, you know, I eventually left that company and worked for a, a Fortune 25 company. Uh, I started back over in sales. I blew the doors off. They made, they made the classic mistake and promoted me to manager, but I had done that in this other company. And so we improved results year over year, 600% that year. I've been told not even to put that on my resume because it sounds so ridiculous. But the company leaders came to me and said, so, Mike, you think you could teach other people how to do that? And I had already had a fascination with training and coaching because of my, uh, my, you know, my former uh, mentor and employer. So I had joined the Association for Talent Development, which was back then ASTD. Right. I joined the uh, uh, International Society for Performance Improvement, which was the National Society back in those days. I had taken a Dale Carnegie course and became a graduate instructor. I was uh, in Toastmasters trying to learn how to speak without tripping all over myself. And so, I, again, I just threw myself into practice drilling and rehearsing. And, you know, a, a couple months later, I was driving across the country in a U-Haul, moving from Pennsylvania to Illinois to become part of the training organization for household finance. And that was 1991. And that's how the whole thing got kickstarted. And that's the dot connection between music and sales. And really, it was all about practice, drill and rehearse. Almost every musician, particularly any professional musician, correct me if I'm wrong on this, is it fair to say that you practice every day or at least every work day if you're a professional musician you don't practice like once a month no yeah you're practicing every single day um you know 80 years old or so there's this story about pablo pascal the the, the phenomenal cellist and um, he was quoted as saying you know why does he still practice he said i think i'm getting better <laughs> and, you know, so I, I did, I, you know, unless I was sick and sometimes even when I was sick, I, I practiced every single day for some amount of time, some days more than others. And when I became a performance major, which was actually my sophomore year of college, uh, my schedule was arranged so that I was pretty much either in a class in, in, in either history, theory, literature, or composition, or I was in a practice room, or I was practicing with a band that I was part of. And so I was practicing in many cases uh, well into the evening. I was drilling, rehearsing, doing 
you know, uh, on uh, trombone, you know, really trying to get in tune, uh, mm -hmm. trying to develop speed, trying to develop volume and to be able to pay, play really quietly. I was taking long pieces and, and ripping them down to short, short segments that were difficult in practicing that segment over and over and over and over until it became easier. Um, there's a dedication to that that I wish that I saw more in the sales profession because we tend to kick people in the seat of the pants and say, go get them tiger. You or, you know, we tend to have them practice in front of their customers. And that that's just not how you either get to be great and achieve mastery um, or it's not how you serve your customers best if we want to be buyer centric. So in, in the same way, I'm realizing as you're talking about it, the capacity to help first with the framework for, for our listeners in sales that you need to think in terms of this is a craft and I am practicing that craft no different than if I was a musician, but recognizing that sometimes the same way you took a difficult piece of music for many people in sales, there is one sentence, one phrase, perhaps the way you deliver the price quote, per perhaps that moment when your, your Adam's apple, you know, sort of goes up and down, <laughs> right? Like being able to practice saying it so that like an actor who, by the way, actors also practice and rehearse and practice and rehearse so that when you do it, it just seems so natural. And I think that's one of the things I notice that people miss. They think it should be easy, which is like me saying to you, if I give you this little club, there's this little white ball, all you gotta do is hit the ball into the hole. It's not that hard, you know? <laughs> but it requires practice. That little windmill keeps knocking my ball exactly. off the fairway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so Mike, let's move on. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about um, a, a personal pivot point for you, or a moment of learning that that really changed your approach to the world of sales enablement. Yeah, there there are a couple of those for me, Mark. Um, you know, I developed an onboarding program years ago that that had new hires outperforming sellers that had been with the company for five years. And they were doing this in somewhere between 30 and 90 days. So it made me really popular with the executives and really unpopular with those sellers, yeah. right? Because new people were coming out and blowing them away. Then something really unexpected happened as we watched this phenomena over time. The performance for those new superstars when they went out into the field, right? They shot up like a rocket, then it kind of leveled off and then it actually started to dip down, mm. right? And, and, and they eventually, they hit the company baseline and were performing like everybody else. And so I'm new at this point to, to, to training or to sales enablement. We weren't calling it at that time, but I was doing all kinds of enablement work. And it seems so obvious today, right? But I hadn't taught any of the managers any of the sales methodology that we were teaching the new hires. And I hadn't validated those managers ability to diagnose root causes or to coach effectively, right? So there was no manager engagement. There was no manager enablement. There was no widespread behavior change that was force multiplied by these managers. And that was a real key learning for me that you don't drive performance improvement or change in an organization unless you've engaged those frontline sales managers. That's a great point, Mike. And, you know, there's so many examples of that, but it's sort of like if, if all you do is train soldiers, but the second lieutenant who is their, their direct commanding officer, if that person doesn't understand the commander's intent or the larger mission, you have chaos. 
And yep. so the, the, the idea of recognizing that, you know, the Romans figured it out over 2000 years ago, there's a reason that the structure is organized the way it is and largely because done correctly, it works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, in, in that same vein too, Mark, the, the other big moment for me, I think was developing a performance orientation, right? So this is, and this is really critical for, I think the sales enablement leaders out there today, I got certified pretty early in, in uh, Bob Mager's criteria referenced instruction, right? I, I wound up taking uh, another workshop with some of the probably the foremost minds or founding fathers, if you will, of human performance technology, and then got really deep into performance consulting. And those were some really defining moments for me and key turning points, being able to do root cause analysis, understanding all the moving parts that influence organizational effectiveness, and being able to apply systems thinking across an organization to improve performance. That stuff all had a huge impact on my work and career. You know, in your current role, kind of all has been leading towards being able to use this. Um, so that, that leads me to a question, Mike, what would you say as you think about going back even to 1992 at HFC, what's changed in terms of the skill sets um, that pe salespeople in particular need in a virtual selling environment versus that in-person dynamic where, where you started back in 92. Yeah, so, so this is an interesting thing too, Mark, and it's a great question, right, given the changes that, that sales forces are facing today. But I'm a, I'm a bad example about what's changed, right? Because that first job that I mentioned I took and was inside sales. And so I was answering the phone for a while. I, I mastered that only due to the entrepreneur's, you know, really willingness to train me and coach me, he saw something in me and he invested. And I got good at that. And so then he switched me to outbound sales. So here I am on the phone, I'm probably 24, 25 years old. And I'm calling uh, companies trying to sell them advertising specialties and imprinted merchandise and stuff for grand openings and all of this. And so, you know, that switch to outbound was tough, but I mastered that with his help. And it was a very problem-centric, buyer-centric approach. And I started targeting these bigger companies. And in nine months, I landed a multi-million dollar account, which was Sears and Roebuck. And back in those days, they still had Roebuck attached yeah. to their name. I don't know whatever happened to him, but- I don't either. He <laughs> got cut, right? But I, you know, I did all of that by phone, snail mail, a very basic early form of email, and uh, courier and delivery services, like you know, having stuff delivered to their office as a surprise with a note from me or something, um, and maybe even a fax machine once or twice, right? So you know, it wasn't even all of the technology that was available today. We certainly couldn't have a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting, right? But you know, I, I was landing multi-million-dollar accounts over the telephone as a 25-year-old. So it puzzles me a bit sometimes. Right when I hear now about the challenges that people are facing with virtual selling, now the, you know as you well know, right there there is a knack to video, right there is you know having a background, having good sound quality. I, I can't lose the headphones even though I know I should, and I have a a great standalone mic, uh, but looking into the camera if you want to make eye contact with somebody, right, I, having the variety of vocal pace, calling on people marked by names, 
uh, giving them, if you're in a virtual training session, giving them some indication. Now, in a moment, Mark, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, we'll start with you, and then we'll probably go to Sarah next. But before we do that, right? It's a, <laughs> right and so now you, you're like kind of sitting up straight, right? Yeah, or totally. I contend that the virtual selling environment exposes far faster than anything before gaps in critical selling skills. You know, reps aren't doing enough sales call planning. We're not really orchestrating meetings effectively at wh wherever they're run, right? We're not setting them up with clear agendas that will meet both either your objective or your backup objective, which you'd better have in case you can't meet your objective or right. won't meet your buyer's objectives or th their buying process decision criteria to be able to feel comfortable moving forward to the next stage with you, the salesperson, if they bring anybody else into the meeting, like an executive to line up with an executive on the other side, they defer to that executive rather than being the orchestra conductor, right? That is really leading this whole meeting, whether they're speaking or not, they're the one who's facilitating it, leading it like an orchestra conductor. And I think those core skills, the gaps in those are far more dangerous and hurtful than, you know, gaps and not fit. Cause this stuff is easy to figure out. If someone right. wants to invest right. in figuring out how do I look better on video? How do I use a background? How do I get a quality mic? How do I look into a camera? You can, those things are very easily learnable. I think some of the core selling skills gaps right now are one of the biggest problems that we've got. You know, Mike, it's real interesting because um, we, we are going to, um, before the uh, midpoint of this year coming out with a book called Mastering Virtual Selling. And it's called Orchestrating uh, Sales Success. And you know the interesting thing about it is exactly the way you've just described it. It's spot on with the philosophy that we are lining up and we're outlining, which is that uh, first of all, virtual selling isn't new. You know, the, the Sears Roebuck catalog all those years ago, right? A hundred years ago, literally. And, and the early days of, of um, direct mail and, and, you know, even mm -hmm. people buying things over the phone, it was all a form of virtual selling. And, and so I think that what you've just described is spot on. And what we believe is that uh, when people understand the power of this, you know, ask yourself this question, why would you not? want to do a discovery call this way before you get on an airplane, fly halfway across the country to take a one hour meeting in some city that you've just spent time, energy, effort, right? For, for a one hour meeting, like if the person isn't going to meet you in this, um, is it really worth going in person? Yeah, absolutely. Look, even before this whole pandemic, I've, I've worked from home on and off and mostly on since about 2013. So, you know, and David Bowders, who, you know, our CEO of Sparks IQ, and, you know, he's, he founded the whole company without a corporate headquarters. Everyone works virtually. So we were working this way beforehand. Now we still would get on a plane and go places. We'd obviously, we'd go to trade shows and conferences and speak and participate and walk the floor and have, have some fun that way as well. But, you know, we were 95% virtual before this whole thing hit. And right. I was running my previous business the same the same way, only really traveling to attend meetings that the client thought were absolutely critical. 
And so I, you know, I think you're right. I think that there'll be somewhat of a bounce back. I think we're going to see a whole lot more of this and we need to get used to it. We need to practice it. We need to master it as sellers and take advantage of the, I mean, imagine how many more customers you could talk to in a day, in a week, in a year, if you weren't driving around constantly in your car or you weren't flying everywhere and sleeping in hotel beds. It's a whole lot smarter from a business perspective, in my opinion. So Mike, let me ask you, I'm thinking about you having gone from multiple different you know, roles that you've played, and then you were sort of uh, kind of a, an industry expert. And I know there's a number of companies now that are kind of snapping up uh, consultants from Gartner and Forrester and you know, industry experts like you. Um, so you, I know you could have gone to a lot of different companies that would value having someone with your authority in the industry. What caused you to choose Sparks IQ? Well, first, it's kind of you to say, Mark, thanks. Um, you know, it was really fun doing my own thing at transforming sales results. At the end, LinkedIn was a client. I was doing work with a Lego, and it's no secret how much respect I have for your team. So it, it wasn't an easy decision to, to go back inside, but there are a couple of really key points. First, I really enjoy being part of an aligned larger team with shared vision and goals. And I, I miss that sometimes when I'm doing my own thing. But at the end of the day, I was really lured, right, by the vision of marrying my content, my IP, my systems with Sparks IQ's binge-worthy Hollywood quality video-based sales training. Yeah. You know, we're, we're launching Modern Sales Foundations in, uh, in next, next month in April. It's got a studio show with two co-hosts. It's got episodes with actors, sort of like Seinfeld or Friends for Sales. Mm -hmm. It's got an entire system of job aids and worksheets and manager support guides to help managers reinforce and coach reps to mastery. Now, MSF is a buyer-centric, value-focused, outcome-oriented sales methodology, and it was all built from what top, top producers do, right? Their practices that absolutely get results. And now it's being delivered in just about the coolest way I could possibly imagine. And that's really what, uh, what made me join forces with Sparks IQ. So before we move off of it, Mike, do you also have a book coming out as well this year? Is that on the agenda? Uh, I do. Yeah, it's uh, ATD Press is going to publish my book on the building blocks of sales enablement. And I, th I think we're still targeted for September for that. So um, I'm really excited about that, too. I've I developed these building blocks over probably the past 20 years or so, again, starting well before sales enablement was even a phrase, right? But it's all of the kinds of things that today we think of as sales enablement or how do you enable a sales force, everything from analytics to buyer personas to messaging to training to management systems. You know, and if you look at the building blocks framework, if you get all those things in place and you get to a formal maturity model of sales enablement, you can absolutely impact win rates and quota attainment. One, one other question, Mike, before we wrap up here, uh, to sort of summarize everything that we've talked about, based on your experience, what do you think is the most important skill that a new employee should learn or improve today? Most important. So um, I'll do I'll do better than I'll, I'll give you uh, I'll give you a couple, right? Sort of my 
uh, my, my top ones in general. Um, and then even two more for sales pros, right? Because I talk about these all the time. Um, speaking generally, I think it's a toss up between critical thinking, prioritization skills, and business acumen. All of those, I think, I see as, as really being sorely missing. Um, we could do a lot more to help people develop better problem solving and critical thinking skills. I think this is so important in the sales profession, especially for consultative sales and buyer-centric selling, where the whole selling profession is going. Um, and then, you know, being able to prioritize and, and target and focus and general business acumen um, would be uh, my top three there. For sales, though, I would, I would say, Mark, uh, it's the ability to do deep consultative discovery with root cause analysis. I, I see that as being something that happens early in the sales process that if you get that right, you could make a ton of mistakes going forward and yeah. still get to a win in the end. If you truly understand the customer, their perspective, their world, their problems, their pains, their opportunities, you know, their current state, desired future state, what are the impacts and outcomes they're looking for? Get that right and a lot of magic starts to happen. And the other thing I think is so critical right now, and it's surprising because this topic has been talked about for more than 50 years but our knowing doing gap is just massive. And that's making a full shift to being completely buyer-centric and having a buyer-centric mindset and behaviors. And we still talk about things like, I need to overcome these objections. Think about that for a second. Right. Right. That is like one of the most combative things I could imagine. It why, is. Not, why not just help buyers resolve their concerns? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think making this shift, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we talk. Um, sometimes I ask senior sales training leaders, imagine that your sales training materials have just accidentally fell into the hands of your top five customers. Yes. Think for a second. Are you mortified or are you proud? That's a great question. Like that is a great question. And I don't have to tell you you know, you sort of go back to like the the uh, the script from the the old school timeshare salespeople. Just to use a dramatic example, right? And, nope. and and that's no question. There there would be there would be a mortification of oh boy, you know, we've just let the cat out of the bag. And and to the example you just described in this more transparent world we live in, just reminding everybody that look, people love to buy; they hate to be sold to. And what you just described, I, I love that that last piece because I, I the, the deep consulting, the really understanding the need, the truth is very often in doing that, you're helping the buyer connect the dots in their own mind. They're not exactly sure themselves. In many cases, not that they're holding out on you, they just don't know. So when right. you take it that one step deeper of the root cause, which you could also call a form of quantification. It's like trying to figure out what is the cause, what percentage of the way they're feeling is a result of this thing versus that thing. But just that level of critical thinking, it's such a far cry from the stereotype of the plaid jacket and you know, kind of sh showing uh, different things on the inside. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 get it, Mark. That is that is so true. You know, we teach a simple acronym we call COINOP. 
And it's a joke, right? Because for years, salespeople have, have been told they were coin operated. Right. We say that buyers are actually coin operated. You have to understand their challenges, their opportunities, the impacts of those of achieving them or not. Right. Um, what what needs does that create for them as they want to move to, toward a future state? Uh, what are the outcomes they're looking for and how would they prioritize those needs and outcomes? If you can get coin op and understand that about your buyers, it tells you so much about what's going on. Um, you know, and actually we've had our CEO uses coin op and discovery and he was talking to a fellow CEO at one point, went through several meetings, not a 30 minute, not an hour, several meetings really digging into this stuff at the end of which this other CEO thanked him for guiding him through that process to be able to truly understand their own situation. Now, how often have you had a buyer do that, right? But I've actually had that happen multiple times when you truly get into deep discovery and you're doing it from understanding versus just trying to find the first opening to pitch your product. It's so, it's so interesting, Mike, as you say that, you know, as we wrap up here, I, I remember watching this story of sales, this salesforce.com show. And, yeah. and it, as you sort of unpack the history of a lot of modern sales training, you realize much of it derived from the Xerox professional sales, professional selling skills program. Yeah. And the thing that was so remarkable about those people at Xerox back then was they did exactly what you just described because they were selling this machine that nobody understood why they even needed one. But mm -hmm. it wasn't until they really did the buyer-centric discovery that they were able to make a case of why this was so compelling. And it was when CEOs started doing exactly what just happened with your CEO, they started calling the president of Xerox to say, can I send my people to your training program? Yeah, and well, that's how Xerox Learning Systems was born. They became Learning International. They became Achieve Global. Yep. And somewhere in between Learning National and Achieve Global, I was teaching that program at Hyatt Hotels. Um, and I've probably, I mean, I did it when they, and talk about video, they had a great video with Michael was the buyer. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Michael, Michael, Jeff and Sally were the sellers and Howard was the buyer. Uh -huh. And you got to see them go through the entire sales process, demonstrating at various levels, the skills taught in the program it was a phenomenal program. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm so glad that I was exposed to that uh, early in my career as well. So Mike, let's wrap up with if people want to know more about you or about Sparks IQ, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, well, it's pretty easy to hunt me down on LinkedIn or any search engine. I own the first few pages on Google, um, but I'm at, I'm at Mike underscore Kunkel on Twitter. You can find me at my website, MikeKunkel.com, K-U-N-K-L-E, or obviously through Sparks IQ, which is S-P-A-R-X-I-Q.com. So and reach out, right? If you're listening to Mark's podcast, you're the kind of person I'd like to have in my network. So reach out, let me know that you heard me here and uh, let's get connected. Thank you, Mike. Uh, that's just such a great, it was a great conversation. Great to connect with you on this. Welcome the chance to do it again and um, look forward to continuing to collaborate with your new book and with your new program. Absolutely, look forward to it, Mark. Thanks a ton and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Adapters Advantage, available on all major podcast platforms. Make sure you visit our website, alego.com, where you can subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss an episode. 
If you liked this show, you might want to check out our virtual training kit to learn how to keep a remote team running at full speed. Go to alego.com slash virtual to download your kit today. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. And don't forget, one new idea can change your life.